I'd like to welcome all of you to the 2021 Buchdahl Lecture. My name is Jason Delborn. I'm a professor of science policy and society in the Department of Forestry and Environmental Resources. I'm also the interim director of the Science, Technology, and Society program here at NC State. Um, and I'm so pleased um, that so many of you could sign in this evening. Um, and I'm really excited about tonight's program. Um, as I'm sure you're aware, the Buchdahl Lecture is usually in person. Um, but we've adjusted this year to be virtual and on Zoom. And so we're really thankful to all of you and to our speakers and panelists for adjusting uh, to this COVID environment. Um, as we begin, I'd like to remember, I'd like all of us to remember that the land that our university, North Carolina State University, sits on was originally stewarded by two indigenous tribes, the Tuscarora and the Catawba. Even as we meet virtually this evening, we acknowledge the history of genocide and forced removal from this territory through colonization. And we honor and respect the many diverse indigenous peoples still connected to this land. To begin our program, um, we'll have short welcoming remarks um, from Dr. Jeffrey Braden, who's the Dean of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and also from Dr. Blair Kelly, who's the Assistant Dean of Interdisciplinary Studies within the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. So Dean Braden, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Jason. I truly appreciate it. Welcome, everyone. This is the 40th anniversary of the Buckdahl Lecture, which has been NC State's interdisciplinary public discussion of science, technology, and human values. This lecture showcases the intersection of the humanities and social sciences with science and technology. As we observe the one-year anniversary of this pandemic, it's difficult to imagine there would be a more important time to think of this intersection. The science of COVID-19, the technological development of vaccines truly have created an opportunity. But for us to move from vaccines to vaccination and to vaccinated, we truly need to bring in the social sciences and the humanities to help people understand the importance to address vaccine skepticism and to think about what it means to return to the normal life. All of these point to the importance of the intersections of science, technology, and human values. We are living at a time, as we always have, when multiple disciplines must work together to solve urgent problems. The roots of this interdisciplinary lecture um, began, uh, and the interdisciplinary studies program began at NC State back in the 1970s. Rolf Buckdahl was a visiting scholar in that interdisciplinary studies program. After spending a lifetime in applied physics, Buckdahl wanted to study and teach about the relationships between science, technology, and religion. The Buckdahl Lecture, uh, inaugurated in 1981, was endowed by his family and friends following Dr. Buckdahl's death to continue that important conversation and narrative thread that he began. It is my pleasure to welcome you, and now I invite Dr. Blair Kelly, the Assistant Dean of Interdisciplinary Studies, to introduce our speaker. 
Thanks, Jeff. On behalf of Interdisciplinary Studies, I'd like to welcome you as well to the 40th anniversary of the Book Doll Lecture. I would like to start by acknowledging Mrs. Claudia Kedis, uh, Rolf Buchdahl's daughter, who will be joining us virtually today. We are thankful for the interest and support from the Buchdahl family for this wonderful annual symposium over many, many years. In interdisciplinary studies, we are fortunate to have this annual opportunity to invite a high profile, internationally recognized speaker to our campus, even if it has to be virtually this year. But we promise to have Dr. Tall Bear back in real life. Uh, as soon as it is safe and we have an opportunity. As Dean Braden mentioned, the pandemic reminds us of the important connections among science, technology, and the social sciences and, and humanities. But this moment in history is not just defined by COVID-19. It intersects with the struggle for, over the movement for Black lives and protests over the past year. We've been reminded so many of us have been reminded of the long-standing struggle against racism. Institutions across the nation have finally begun conversations about equity and inclusion. Tonight's speaker, Dr. Kimberly Tallbear, reminds us that science is also a place where we need to seek equity and think critically about issues of structural injustice. Her presentation will offer us both conceptual understanding of indigenous STS as well as helping us think through how her work supports practical efforts to foster indigenous governance through science and technology. And we're thankful for her presence here today to guide us in that conversation. And now I would like to hand it over to Dr. Jason Delborn, our Director of the Science, Technology and Society Program to introduce this year's speaker. Thank you so much, Dean Kelly and Assistant, or, uh, Dean Braden and Assistant Dean Kelly for those words of welcome. Before I introduce today's speaker, um, I would like to introduce our two panelists who will join me in a conversation with Dr. Tallbear after her presentation. And you'll note that there is a Q&A button at the bottom of your Zoom screen where you can submit questions to our panelists uh, for us to consider in asking questions uh, to the speaker after her talk. Dr. Katie Barnhill-Dilling is a postdoctoral researcher in forestry and environmental resources. For her PhD, she studied the genetically engineered American chestnut tree and focused on practices of engagement between the developers of that technology and indigenous communities in upstate New York. Nancy Strickland Fields is a PhD student in our Department of History. Uh, she is the first Lumbee graduate of the Institute of American Indian Arts in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and she has worked for 18 years in museum education and administration, including at the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, DC. Her current research focuses on ancestral corn reclamation and restoring riparian traditions among North Carolina tribes. And it's now my pleasure to introduce the 2021 Buchdahl speaker, Dr. Kimberly Tallbear. Dr. Tallbear is Associate Professor, Faculty of Native Studies at the University of Alberta, Alberta and Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Peoples, Technoscience, and environment. She has held previous academic positions at University of Texas at Austin, University of California, Berkeley, and Arizona State University. Dr. Tallbear is author of Native American DNA, Tribal Belonging and the False Promise of Genetic Science, which is published by University of Minnesota Press in 2013, and which received the Best First Book Award from the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. 
She earned her PhD from the University of California at Santa Cruz in the history of consciousness, a master's in environmental policy and planning from MIT, and a BA in community planning from University of Massachusetts at Boston. She is a citizen of the Sisseton Wapatan Oyata, Oyate in South Dakota. Uh, and at the University of Alberta, uh, Dr. Talbert is building a research hub in indigenous science, technology, and society. This evening, Dr. Talbert will address indigenous STS, governance, and decolonization. So because we're on Zoom, we can't offer our applause, but I'm so pleased uh, to see so many of you signed in here on a Wednesday evening. Um, please go ahead and submit your questions during the talk in the Q&A, um, and note that uh, those will only be visible to the panelists, um, not to the full audience. So Dr. Talbert, thank you so much for joining us as our 40th anniversary Bukdal speaker. The Zoom is yours. Thank you. It's good to be here, sort of. I wish I could be there in person. Okay, I'll get started. Um, so I'm coming to you tonight from, oh, and I just want to say I live on uh, near downtown Edmonton. And so you may hear sirens or motorcycle type um, loud mufflers, but hopefully not too much. <laughs> so, because we're getting past um, uh, rush hour now. Okay, so I um, want to just give my land acknowledgement here as well. So I'm uh, coming to you from Treaty 6 territory. Uh, here in Edmonton, right next to the North Saskatchewan River Valley. It's right outside my window, although you probably can't see it. Um, and this is a traditional gathering place uh, for diverse Indigenous peoples, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Nakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Anishinaabe, and Inuit peoples. So quite a gathering place because the river here is, is large and beautiful and uh, was a major thoroughfare. So um, and I assume somebody else is running my slides. I'm not seeing them but uh, we're still on slide one. Uh, I just wanna give you a brief note on terminology. Um, it's always political and contextual. And because I go between the, um, between both the United States and Canada, and I also work globally, um, I will pick and choose my terms very carefully, but you may not understand why I'm going between different terms. It may seem arbitrary, but there is no universally politically appropriate term. Uh, so you don't get to be lazy when you use, and anybody in any insider community knows this, right? So you all must always be attentive and willing to be corrected around terminology related to indigenous or tribal peoples. So it depends on where, when, and who you are as to which terms are used to not to be used and most appropriate to, uh, to use. So again, today you'll hear me move between terms in ways that might sound a bit arbitrary to the unschooled listener, but there's always a good reason for why I use different terminology. So let's move to slide two, please. So I just want to talk briefly about uh, science and governance. And then as that relates to indigenous people, just as a little bit of background, um, this is my colleague, uh, Jessica Kolopenik, who is my co-PI at the University of Alberta in our Indigenous STS Research and Training Program. And um, <clears throat> she points out on this slide that, hold on, excuse me. She points on this, out on this slide that colonial ideas about race and reason have dually informed 
or duly framed indigenous peoples as objects of scientific curiosity and as political wards of state governance. And you will hear in US legalese, tribes discussed as uh, domestic dependent nations. Um, the historical view is that indigenous people have not been rational enough to produce valid knowledge or to run real governments. And this is true in settler colonial nations around the world or in, in colonized by, it's true in the view of colonizers around the world. So indigenous science, technology and society or indigenous STS as we are conceiving of it at the University of Alberta and with partner institutions across Canada and with scholars globally supports indigenous communities and nations to exercise sovereignty. Now the word sovereignty is a useful but it's a not unproblematic word. There are uh, scholarly debates in uh, indigenous studies about that word and I do not have time to elaborate on that today but that's just think about that. So indigenous governance or sovereignty is exercised through legislation, tribal or ban governance, policy and court cases. But indigenous governance also includes non-bureaucratic components such as customary laws, individual and collective actions such as critical land defense and water protector actions. We saw that at Standing Rock in the No Dapple movement in 2016. Indigenous peoples also have intergovernmental relations with federal, provincial, territorial, and in the US state governments that aid or hinder indigenous governance, communities, and environments. States in the US and provinces in Canada are notorious along with the feds for regularly undermining indigenous governance authorities. So the idea that indigenous people, uh, as Jessica Kolopenik points out on this slide, not being rational enough to produce valid knowledge or to run real governments, that of course is a lie. Uh, one of many used by colonizer states, including the US and Canada, to justify their theft of all things indigenous. Indigenous governance is also exercised via science and technology development, including indigenous engagement with both Western science and also traditional knowledges. I put those in scare quotes because I myself see there, those uh, forms of knowledge production as lying on a spectrum, but that's not really the state of the discussion in the academy. They tend to be divided. So like nation states and all over the world, indigenous nations govern through science in part. So let's go to slide three. <clears throat> great pictures on here. I'm going to sit here for a minute. So or beyond this for a minute, so you can see all these great people involved in our indigenous STS network. So this uh, field, burgeoning field uh, and network, both in Alberta and globally, is informed like more mainstream uh, STS, if I guess that is. I don't know, is STS a mainstream field? <laughs> We're informed like more mainstream STS by disciplines including history of science and anthropology of science and by mainstream STS analytical frameworks and methods. So think about those frameworks as you study them in your STS classes. But we as Indigenous STS, we're not an add-on to STS, although it may look like that. We are first and foremost informed by Native or Indigenous studies intellectual genealogies and by commitments to indigenous community and indigenous sovereignties and indigenous studies should be committed to indigenous sovereignty and community. If it's not, it's not indigenous studies. It's some other kind of studies about indigenous people. So that's my little disciplinary plug there. Be careful when you use indigenous studies. Are you really talking about indigenous studies? Uh, we add to that, to, to our in, indigenous studies genealogy and to our engagements with mainstream STS, uh, 
a broader array of engagements across the academy. So uh, we are also seriously engaging with uh, feminist uh, science studies and feminist scholarship generally, with Black and African studies and other anti-colonial analytics deployed by our diverse colleagues that are getting involved in this field. So Indigenous STS is in short committed to interrogating colonial science and we are committed to doing and supporting others doing science that resists colonial hierarchies. As individuals within our Indigenous STS network, we are mostly Indigenous scholars, but our growing network also includes non-Indigenous people who from their particular standpoints also make ultimately anti-colonial critiques of scientific practices and institutions. And these include uh, non-Indigenous queer scholars, black scholars, crip theory scholars, and others, including among them scientists but scientists who are also doing social theory in an informed and rigorous way. So unfortunately, we have scientists being called upon by, say, the press to talk about these complicated world issues for which they have no social theoretical training to discuss. So our scientists that we work with are actually really informed by social theory. So, for example, uh, for the 4S meeting this coming October, which would have taken place in Toronto if we were there in person, and that's the Society for Social Studies of Science, 4S, we're planning a plenary called Science That Unsettles. And that's a title taken from uh, Dr. McLean's blog, uh, who is referenced on this slide, uh, Shay Akil McLean. Science That Unsettles refers, of course, to unsettling settler colonialism and the assumptions that rise from it and which continue to inform scientific practice today. These are ideas, for example, about who is advanced and who is primitive, gender hierarchies and gender binarism, ableism, biological race assumptions, linear and progressive temporal thinking, etc. So while science that unsettles that plenary is organized According to Indigenous STS frameworks, it also incorporates non-Indigenous scientists and social scientists who work in the aforementioned critical areas. So Drs. McLean and Smith, uh, who are who's also on this slide, um, for example, both of them are trained in biological anthropology, and McLean is also trained in evolutionary biology. Both of these scientists work directly to unsettle colonial racial formations, gender binarism, and heteronormative assumptions in their lab and field science. And I even if I had time to talk more about the really amazing work they're doing, I am not a scientist trained in their fields and I follow with great attention, but I don't always understand. It's like my Spanish. I understand more than I speak. So if you're interested in their work, uh, their um, websites are on this slide, rickwasmith.com and decolonizeallthethings.com is Dr. McLean's uh blog. So they're just fantastic. I'm so excited to have them on our uh, plenary panel that's going to be coming up in October in addition to other uh, scholars. So we can go to the next slide. And those were just pictures, by the way, from our Indigenous STS forum um, uh, and some of the people involved. Okay. So this is basic feminist science studies for those of you who are in the field, uh, but I'll just give an overview for those that are not. So all peoples do science and all sciences are cultural. This is why I kind of object to the terms tradition, tradi traditional ecological knowledge or indigenous knowledge, and then science over here. Everybody, peoples around the world have used what we today call the scientific method. Um, 
Also, those who do quote-unquote Western science also do intuitive things, have dreams. There's other non-scientific method things that come in to inform the way Western science is done. That's why I say all peoples do science and all sciences are cultural. Now, unfortunately, science and other STEM fields, to perhaps varying degrees, are typically misunderstood as distinct from politics or from explicitly political interventions. So science is supposed to be objective or neutral. But as feminist and indigenous theorists have demonstrated and queer theorists, etc., science is always already situated within certain worldviews and not others. It is produced by researchers and institutions with certain cultural and political stakes and not others. Even while rigorous science also inform, also works to reduce bias via experimental replication or peer review, this is different than performing the God trick. So yes, we, we can all be in agreement that uh, multiple experiments, confirming your results, doing peer review are good things. Um, but that's a different kind of idea than assuming that one can perform the God trick, as Donna Haraway has famously called it. And I found a little a little visual to kind of illustrate the God trick, this disembodied eye that sees the world. And that's the idea that one can, like God, stand nowhere and everywhere at the same time, seeing everything, seeing the universe, but from outside of a body with a gaze from somewhere in particular. So that's a, a really good illustration of what the God trick is. And this is what I think standard objectivist science tries to tell us it's doing. To the contrary, Donna Haraway and other feminist, indigenous, African, queer, crip, and many other thinkers demonstrate that all forms of inquiry, both science and traditional knowledges, are grounded in specific bodies, specific institutions, specific nations and cultures. Science can bring evidence to help solve problems, to make laws and policy, but it is produced by humans who ask certain questions and not others who hold certain standards and goals as normative, and who control fields while indigenous and other disempowered communities do not wield such authority in the world of science. So along with feminist STS, with black techno science, and there will be a black techno science plenary at 4S this fall too, along with crypt techno science, queer STS, indigenous STS studies the intersections of science, technology, and governance, but with a focus on indigenous techno science and governance. So for example, some questions. Oh, I've just got the overview of uh, kind of what constitutes an anti-colonial question on this slide. Uh, so that's thinking about who gets to gaze at others, who gets to study, who or what gets studied, who gets to play God, who gets to claim objectivity. And I and I use this little visual all the time. See, notice it's, it's all probably white people uh, with these big zoom lenses taking pictures of, we don't know, they're probably in Africa, right? Or maybe the outback of Australia. I don't know those trees that well. Uh, in their Land Rover, that's such a classic colonial vehicle, right? Gazing at what? The wildlife. Whether it's human or non-human, it's the wildlife. So it's the Western white subject that has the microscope, that has the camera. They're the ones that we assume gets to, gets to do the gazing. I used to tell people, look on the internet and Google scientist. And it used to be even five or 10 years ago that you would get like the white guy with the beard in the lab coat. Well, I did this experiment recently and I was like, oh, there's a whole bunch of women now in lab coats, a whole bunch of brown and black people. So anyway, the, the internet is changing. That's great. <laughs> Science looks more diverse at least out on the internet. Um, <clears throat> but to go 
so to get from these broader questions, there are some more specific, let me give you some examples of more specific questions that say indigenous science might ask. And I don't mean traditional knowledge. I mean, well, it could be part of it, but I mean actual science. Uh, so for example, how can First Nations govern consent and ownership of biological samples and data produced in a genetic research project on a condition suffered in their community? So we have people concerned with data sovereignty, right? Uh, meaning that the, the, the biological samples and the data needs to be uh, controlled by the community, not simply by the scientists who come in and bleed the subjects, then take it back and freeze it in their lab. Uh, number two, what is the role of colonialism? So, for example, loss of land, loss of traditional foodways, uh, intergenerational trauma in the prevalence of a particular condition. So we often talk about diabetes, for example. Uh, there, there are many ongoing studies looking at uh, diabetes in certain populations and, and there's an interest in um, finding a genetic trigger for this condition. When it's type 2 diabetes, we know that this is a, a, it's a lifestyle condition. We call it a colonial condition, right? If, if land has been lost and traditional foodways have been lost, uh, colonialism has reshaped bodies <clears throat> and it's reshaped genomes. So... Uh, Let's see. And then a uh, final question is, do non-Indigenous researchers neglect colonialism in favor of hypotheses about Indigenous bodies as genetically deviant? So I basically just stated that. And thank you for going to the next slide. <laughs> okay. These are just illustrations of this overarching uh, thing I'm going to talk about in the next couple of minutes. So, and I'll come back to these. Uh, colonial powers have practiced policy and used science together historically to appreciate and suppress indigenous life ways, to seize control of land, eradicate indigenous authorities, and erect colonial social systems in their place. Colonialism, including its scientific institutions, has justified resource extraction, caused harm to indigenous peoples and lands, and to other exploited peoples all across the planet. Colonial policies, sciences, and technologies have brought us into an era of planetary environmental devastation. But indigenous practices, conversely, can help convert, conserve the planet's biodiversity. Witness record-breaking wildfires in California, for example, after centuries of suppressing indigenous controlled burns. If science is to serve the planet, it needs to serve indigenous peoples and cultures who have instead been sacrificed. Science must be diversified and made to work ontologically, epistemologically, and ethically for indigenous and other marginalized communities. Indigenous environmental knowledges can be respected and coupled with biological and climate science to protect indigenous peoples and the planet. And this kind of better science serves all of us better. So let's just look at this example really quick. When I look down to, I'm looking at my stopwatch. So um, this is a picture on the left of uh, Amam Mutsen Band in conversation with local landholders in Central Coast, California. Um, this is near Santa Cruz, where I did my PhD, and it's traditional homelands of Amam Mutsen people or Ohlone. Um, they are so local landholders there are non-indigenous though, and they have been um there for several hundred years though. So they do have local knowledge, right, uh, of that landscape. And they're also talking with the Cal Department of Environmental Quality and uh, thinking about how to uh, collaborate uh, on scientific knowledge production around uh, fire management and, and land management. So really interesting project and good example of how you can work these things together. And I just took this Democracy Now! Um, video. This is, I was actually in California during the wildfires. I was there in San Francisco the night uh, in 
August, I think it might've been August 8th, uh, when those hundreds or thousands of lightning strikes hit all over the Bay Area. And then we had fires raging everywhere a couple of days later. It was a very scary time. My daughter had moved out there to intern on a mountain at a farm in the middle of fire country in Sonoma County. I was very distressed about leaving her there, but she insisted. So imagine leaving your child in wildfire country. Anyway, so this is this is really something that's really so immediate for so many of us, right? Okay, let's go to the next slide. <clears throat> let's see. I'm in for these terms. I wasn't sure I had time, but I think it's kind of important. Um, so we're all on the same page. So I'm going to go over a couple of terms on a couple of different slides. And then I'm going to go into talking about the summer internship for Indigenous peoples and genomics, which really manifests these terms and the kind of Indigenous STS ethic and worldview that I was talking about up until now. So we often throw these terms around in the academy, very much in Canada, and I think also increasingly in the United States. And we, I don't think we all necessarily mean the same thing when we use these words. So I just want to talk about indigenization first. And this is in a context of equity, diversity, and inclusion, or EDI, which is the terminology used in both of these countries. So um, I'm citing first Rauna Kokkonen, who's a Sami scholar from Finland, and a feminist uh, Sami scholar, indigenous people, Sami, cuts across the north of Scandinavia and also into Russia. Um, she says, conceptually, indigenization represents a move to expand the academy's still narrow conceptions of knowledge to include indigenous perspectives in transformative ways transformative ways. That's what's really important. Inclusion needs to be transformative if you're talking about indigenization. But it's often talked about at kind of a lesser level of transformation in the, in the academy every day. Uh, and so I have definitions here taken from uh, Adam Godry and Daniel Lorenz's article, which is focused on the Canadian Academy, but much of this applies in the United States, published in this journal, Alternative. I think this article is from 2018. So they say that Indigenous inclusion aims to increase numbers of Indigenous students in the academy, supports adaptation of those students to the academy. Uh, indigenization is conceived of primarily as a matter of inclusion and access. And by merely including more Indigenous peoples, it's believed that universities can indigenize without substantial structural change. Other groups will, this will ring true with other groups too in terms of inclusion. So that's the first level. But Godry and Lorenz then move to the second level, which is reconciliation. And we talk about that a lot in Canada. I think it's talked about less in the United States. Um, but reconciliation aims for common or middle ground, creates a broader consensus regarding what counts as knowledge. Uh, what sets reconciliation and indigenization apart, they say, from mere inclusion is an attempt to alter the university structure including educating faculty, staff, and students to change how they think about and act toward Indigenous people. So it's not just recruiting students or recruiting faculty. It's actually um, non-Indigenous people attempting to get educated about Indigenous history, about you know, the various structural barriers that Indigenous people have uh, in the academy, getting educated about their own sort of um, the way that Indigenous people have been erased in, their, in, in the histories that as they understand them about Canada or the United States, right? So it requires action on the part of non-Indigenous people. That's really important. Uh, and that they work on changing themselves and their own ideas and thinking. So let's move to slide seven. 
What we're, we're really after for, though, is this third level of indigenization, which Godry and Lorenz call decolonial indigenization. I just call it decolonization. And I bring in another citation here, which I believe they also cite. This is a classic article now in Indigenous Studies, published, I think, in 20, 2012 already. Uh, Eve Tuck, who's at University of Toronto, and Kay Wayne Yang at UC San Diego, published this article, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And they say that it, decolonization brings about the repatriation of Indigenous land and life. That is my touchstone. When I'm using the word decolonization, what's being repatriated? What, what land or life? And life we can talk about broadly. I would look at the Singh program that I'm about to talk about as a repatriation of Indigenous life. It involves resources. It involves governance authorities. It involves capacity building. But it must always, I think, involve some sense of resource return, right? Because the colonial nation state, uh, the university, corporations, government, these are built based on in addition to appropriation of free labor from the enslaved, appropriation of indigenous lands. So Tuck and Yang say decolonization is not a metaphor for other things we want to do to improve our societies and schools. The easy adoption of decolonizing discourse by educational advocacy and scholarship evidenced by the increasing number of calls to decolonize our schools or use decolonizing method, et cetera, turns decolonization into a metaphor. A common thing we do in the university is we talk about decolonizing syllabi right? Uh, what do you mean by that? Um, I'm not discouraging you from changing your syllabi in, in, in ways that are doing inclusion, right? That are thinking about reconciliation, but what is being repatriated? And it doesn't have to be direct and, and immediate, but what eventually will be repatriated to the colonized by you changing up your syllabus? So should you really call it decolonizing your syllabus? Just food for thought as you, as you move in that direction. Okay. So decolonization is the repatriation of indigenous land and life. Let's move to slide eight. Now we're going to talk about the Singh program. We're at about 24 minutes. I could talk for hours on this, so I'm really trying to <clears throat> respect your time. <laughs> okay, Singh Canada. This is so exciting. This is our new Singh Canada logo. Uh, I could do a whole talk on this too. I just got it yesterday. We worked with two scientists. I think they're both Métis scientists, and they're in Winnipeg. And for those of you that don't know, Métis does not simply mean mestizo or mixed. That's the way it gets used in the U.S. Métis, capital M, is a people, a post-contact Indigenous people. And somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I think of the Lumbee as a post-contact Indigenous people. Métis people are post-contact Indigenous, meaning they are a new people and a new culture that arose from the merging or meeting of different peoples. So Métis people can be, they have Cree relatives. And uh, in the Red River Valley of Manitoba, I think there's Scottish people who settled, who became relatives. They can have Anishinaabe relatives. So they're, they're a new Indigenous culture that arose post-contact. And that was kind of in a amalgamation of peoples that came together and produced a new Indigenous people. Very complicated to talk about that. But anyway, two Métis artists uh, from uh, originally from the Red River uh, area of Manitoba, which is where the ethnogenesis of Métis people, capital M, occurred, uh, helped us produce this logo. And we got together in design kind of conversations and some of our scientists uh, talked about assays and they, so we started out with the artists wanting to use quill work and you'll have to Google quill work. It's my favorite if planes kind of, instead of beadwork, we can also do quill work, dyeing and working with porcupine quills to make beautiful kinds of jewelry and do quill work on moccasins and things. Well, quill work is also done on the prairies in, in Canada. And so the artists wanted to do something based on quill work. Um, and then 
we said, well, how can we merge this with the science that we're doing? And so then you can see like in, in the logo there, uh, we also used um, um, assays from the four medicines, um, cedar, sage, tobacco, Oh my gosh, I can't remember what the other one is up here. Anyway, so we took the 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 uh, the genome of each of those four medicines, and then the sort of genomic representation of that, and we sort of uh, put that in a circle and attempted to also make it look like quill work. That was just amazing. So anyway, um, that's our new logo. Okay, so now let's talk about the program. <clears throat> so. Um, Sing uh, Canada, it, we founded it in 2018. Uh, Sing USA, which I'll talk about in a minute, was founded in 2011. Um, I, I and another colleague from, uh, actually my colleague, Jessica Bardale, who I think was at UNC Greensboro, I think before she moved up to Concordia University in Montreal, uh, she and I found co-founded Sing Canada with my colleague, you saw on the uh, slide earlier, Jessica Kolopenik, um, <clears throat> in 2018. But based on the template that Sing USA uses, and Jesse, Jessica uh, Bardell and I were both faculty in Sing USA since 2011. So uh, these are just photos from our chronic wasting disease themed year in 2019. Of course, 2020 got canceled due to COVID. And we worked on a, a Indigenous Peoples and Pandemics video instead, which should be done soon. So those are photos of uh, some of our participants. We not only have... Uh, in fact, our applications are open right now. If you go to my Twitter account, I just tweeted out the application links for Sing Canada and Sing USA today. Uh, so it it's, uh, invites Indigenous people. They can be undergrads, grad students. Uh, we've had community members. We've had postdocs and even assistant professors who come together for a week to do some work in the wet lab, but they also get lectures on decolonial bioethics. Um, they have We have talking circles where they, they talk about the difficulty of staying in science. We have lectures on uh, bioethics. Um, we have bioinformatics sessions and we're themed some, uh, we have a theme every summer in all of the countries we work in that is some, uh, how related to a, an indigenous, uh, an interest that an indigenous communities have in the local areas related to genomics. So, uh, on the right, you've got one of the, uh, indigenous community members, an elder who is, I think in a regulatory position with one of the first nations up here in Canada and, uh, Warren Cardinal McTeague, who, uh, and you see, he's got the beadwork on his lab coat. He's Métis. He is an ethnobotanist. Uh, and he was with us this year, this, uh, in 2019. So let's move to the next slide and I'll sort of talk my way through the program here. As I said, we have bioinformatics sessions. This is not like super interesting. <laughs> I mean, it is once you're in the lab, but you know, not not visually interesting. This is what it what it looks like when we get into the bioinformatics lab. We were founded in 2011, the U.S. program at University of Illinois, the Institute for Genomic Biology and uh, Anthropology there, and Native Studies um, got together and I think wrote the grant. We were initially funded by NSF. Uh, we're now in the U.S. funded, I think, more by National Institutes of Health. Uh, but they have really fantastic facilities at University of Illinois. We were there the first few years, and then we got the idea to move around from university to university. Um, and so different themes and different universities each year, and then different Indigenous faculty at those institutions and non-Indigenous allies taking the lead and organizing each differently themed summer session. Um, I was going to say something else, but I, I lost my train of thought. Okay, let's go to the next slide. I'm sure it'll come back to me. So we have in uh, the U.S. Um, 
it's called LC or ethical, legal, and social implications. And I think it's something like 3% of the budgets around genome research are dedicated to LC issues. In Canada, we call it GELS, same basic thing, ethical, environmental, economic, legal, and social aspects. And that's the terminology that Genome Canada uses, which is our major funder in Canada for the work that we're doing. So um, <clears throat> as I say here, these approaches, both GELS and LC, represent bioethical baselines that open pathways to move towards decolonization and indigenization, but there are significant barriers to such movement. So GELS and LC discussions and the way those are conceived of in the non-Indigenous Academy, the way they're conceived of by federal governments in these two countries are a really good baseline for starting to think about ethics, but they don't get us all the way to decolonization. And so we are very explicit in saying about uh, the barriers of colonization and the integral roles that science and the disciplines have played in colonialism. And that's what I mean by decolonial bioethics. So we go over the standard stuff like the, you know, the, the, the Belmont report, the history of the rise of bioethics after the horrors in Nazi Germany post-World War II. We go over all of that. That's in standard bioethical curricula. But we also situate the particular theme of the summer, the scientific questions we're interested in within a long history of sort of critical colonial analysis. And that is something that our indigenous participants, even if they're grad students in a biology program or a genetics program or even postdocs or, or assistant professors already out beginning their careers, they have never gotten these kinds of conversations in their typical scientific training. And that's why they come to sing, even when they're more advanced. So let's go to the next slide. Okay, so this is just a view of the Sing world so far. <laughs> so Sing US was founded in 2011. Uh, oh, the other thing, I know what I wanted to say. So in Sing US, when we were founded, we were indigenous ethics faculty. So people who'd been tracked towards social science and humanities and non-indigenous scientists. In the now 10 years that saying US has been in existence, we now have indigenous scientists taking over as PIs of Sing US and the non-indigenous scientists are moving into the background and being acting in a supportive mentoring role. So we have a Cherokee uh, PI, we've got a lot of Navajo scientists involved, uh, Kanakamali or native Hawaiian scientists involved taking over the leadership of Singh. So in Singh Canada, we are where Singh US was in 2011. You have indigenous people doing the ethics work and doing the sort of decolonial kind of educational work uh, in the program. And we've got non-indigenous scientists mostly uh, as faculty, although we quickly move indigenous participants like Dr. McTeague, the Métis uh, ethnobotanist who you saw on the previous slide, uh, we're going to move moving people like that into faculty very quickly. And so I hope in 10 years that Sing Canada is also that the PIs of Sing Canada are Indigenous scientists, right? And that we'll see that uh, same transformation. Uh, we're in conversations with scientists uh, and communities in Mexico and Chile for Sing Mexico and Chile. Uh, I heard just yesterday that some of our uh, Native Hawaiian colleagues that are involved in Sing US are thinking about doing a Sing, a Sing Hawaii or Sing Pacific, which makes a lot of sense both for geographic reasons, but also for 
histories of colonialism. Uh, and so we do try to pay attention to particular colonial contexts in different nation states when we're when we're sort of uh, contextualizing the way that you do genome science. And so it does make sense to have programs in different countries. Indigeneity doesn't work the same way everywhere in the world. Colonialism didn't work exactly the same way everywhere in the world. I think we've also been asked by uh, colleagues in South Africa, would we be consider doing a program there? Um, my only... Um, concern about opening up new programs in different parts of the world is that we need to be confident that our contacts on the ground have good relations with indigenous communities. Again, because indigeneity and colonialism works differently in different parts of the world, we can't go around the world with our North American-centric views of colonialism and indigeneity and assume it's going to work the same way everywhere. And so building those relationships before we start a new SING program takes time. Uh, Sing Australia came online in 2019, uh, and then Sing Aotearoa New Zealand started in uh, 2016. Now, Sing Australia is unique in that they felt that they didn't have enough Indigenous people in the scientific pipeline in Australia to have an Indigenous dedicated Sing program. All the rest of the Sing programs, you have to be Indigenous in order to apply to the program. Uh, and in Australia, they said, we would like to serve both Indigenous and non-Indigenous scientists who want to work collaboratively with Indigenous communities, which I think is a fantastic idea. And we have been asked in the United, in Canada, for example, would we consider having a program to serve non-Indigenous scientists who want to work with Indigenous communities? And I would love to do that. I would, But this could be a full-time job, you know. Um, so hopefully in the future, we'll move towards having the resources, the human resource capacity uh, to do that kind of work. So very exciting. Let's go to slide. 12. Uh, these are just more images of uh, Singh. This is from Singh Aotearoa. These were two community members, two uh, uh, elder people who are uh, probably, I didn't go to Singh Aotearoa that year, but who are probably very involved in community. And we want community members who are not necessarily training to be scientists because they we need people in community who understand the, the world of science and the culture and the, the pressures that you confront and that indigenous peoples from their communities will confront in the lab and will confront in the field, will confront in terms of ethics, right? And, and jumping through the hoops of building a scientific career. People in community, it's really helpful if, if the culture brokers in community understand where indigenous scientists are coming from in order to broker better research relationships between uh, research institutions and the community. So that's why, and also younger, like our under graduate and grad students, young Indigenous people who are moving through science, who are often the only Indigenous person in their big 200-person biology lecture, they love having elders there. That was really interesting to me, like they love it. Um, and just having them as part of the conversation. And usually they help us open the day in a good way, as we say on the prairies, let's open the day in a good way. We'll have a prayer, we'll do, we don't keep those things out of the laboratory, right? We, uh, we uh, are very interested in uh, some people would call it spirituality. That's personally a word that I'm theorizing moving away from. Uh, but we try to open the day in a good way with good relations, good relations with uh, between each other, good relations with our ancestors, with our descendants to come, good relations with, um, you know, the the being whose uh, biologicals we might be engaging with in the laboratory, right? This is a, actually one of those colonial limitations of standard Western bioethics. Uh, human subjects that human remains are not considered human subject, right? Well, they remain human to us. And so we have to have more robust ways of talking about the beings with whose bodies and materiality we are engaging in the laboratory. They're not dead, inanimate 
matter to us. And our bioethical frameworks must be developed to account for that. And so when you go into indigenous communities, when you've got informed and trained scientists, you can begin to develop your own bioethical frameworks. Yes, we will include those federal standards, but we also, we dig deeper. That's that's the bare minimum of what we need to do. That's not getting us anywhere near a robust ethical framework, which is what our scientists and saying and community members are trying to do. On the right, there is a photograph. I, th these are amazing people. Um, these are Sing US people. Uh, Katrina Claw is a Navajo geneticist who now has a lab as she works on pharmacogenomic stuff. She has a lab at University of Colorado, Denver. Uh, that's Keolu Fox, uh, who is Kanaka Maoli. I think Keolu's at UC San Diego now. Nani Bagarison, trained as a geneticist, also Navajo Dene, is uh, in the Center for Society and Genetics at uh, UCLA. Uh, Crystal Sosi is at Vanderbilt, uh, also Navajo. There's a ton of Navajo scientists, and I could talk about that in Q&A if anybody's interested. And then um, Joe Arachetta, who's Perpetua, uh, grew up in the US though, uh, is a PhD candidate, Johns Hopkins, and they are like a force to be reckoned with. Those five work together a lot, including on data sovereignty projects. So let's go to slide 13. <clears throat> Looks like I have one minute left if I'm going to do this in 40 minutes. This is just a photo of Sing USA when they were at the University of Arizona with a cancer genomics theme. It was really hot that year. I was there for that one. Imagine Tucson in July. <laughs> but luckily, this, the rainy season was starting. The storms were coming in every night. It was great, though. Uh, let's go to the next slide. Uh, this is Sing Canada, both years that we got to meet in person. 2018, we were at Simon Fraser University working on clam and conservation genomics. All women except for one man, and we had a baby that year too. We we're also very welcoming of children. And some of our Indigenous scientists now are getting through school, starting labs, and hitting the age where suddenly we have like three new Sing babies this year. So for our Sing merchandise, we're going to start doing onesies, I think, in addition to the t-shirts we do for everybody. So trying to figure that out. Um, Sing Canada on the right, that was chronic wasting disease. We met at the University of Alberta. We had planned a theme on H. pylori and the microbiome for last summer got canceled. We will probably do that next year in 2022. This year in 2021, we're online in collaboration with Sing US, and we're going to probably focus on... Um, is it mobile technology? So being able to do um, genome analysis in the field, we're trying to figure that out. And this will also enable us to go into territories in Canada. Um, I'm interested in taking Sing to every uh, province and territory over the next 10 years. And having these handheld technologies that we can work with will be really helpful for communities in more remote, well, remote, I say, remote from the settlers in the south of Canada. Let's go to the next slide. And just more photos of Sing USA. These are most of the years since we started uh, at uh, pictures from University of Illinois, Arizona. We did it one year at University of T uh, Texas at Austin when I was there. We've done it at University of Washington in Seattle. So we've uh, had over 130 participants now across eight cohorts. And while we are uh, focusing on the nation state that we're in, we do some global exchange. So we had an Australian come to Sing Canada a couple of years ago. We had an American come to Sing Canada. We've had people from New Zealand go to Sing US and vice versa. People from US go to New Zealand and Australia. And then we had a, let's move to the next slide. Uh, we had a... Um, a Sing Global meeting in 2020, where people, uh, our Sing participants came from around the world. And, um, oh, that's out of order. Let's go one more. I think I put that out of order for you. Yep, that's the one I want. Thank you. Um, 
So we, we do periodic global meetings where we bring all of the young Singh participants together uh, to present their research. Uh, and so, and then to network. So this is one of the main things. This is, this is uh, in part a, a, a mini kind of research week, but really what it's about is networking indigenous scientists and community members and regulators together to build this kind of global indigenous g- genomics uh, research and governance community. Uh, and so it's really helpful for them to, to meet other people from around the world doing this work. Um, and that's how we've been able to, for example, develop this and uh, help develop this indigenous data sovereignty movement that's now a kind of a global uh, professional and regulatory kind of uh, movement. Uh, so those are just some of the universities that we want to go to and some of the themes that we will work on. Uh, not on there. I'm also uh, on a grant to do uh, cancer genomics um, with partners at uh, out in uh, Ontario. So we may do a, a, a Toronto meeting too in the next couple of years if that funding comes through. Let's move to the next slide in the Sing USA workshop themes. Uh, we only started doing themes in 2017. So cancer genomics, pharmacogenomics, uh, they can, uh, epigenetics, uh, historical trauma, they did that one. <clears throat> okay, let's go to slide 18 or then whatever the next one is, yeah. These are just examples of publications. So not only do we have this uh, week and build this professional network, we actually try to encourage uh, indigenous uh, participants, uh, sort of young academics who are rising through the ranks to publish and they get mentoring on publishing and grant writing through the PIs and the more senior people in the SING network. So these are some of the publications that uh, the SING consortium has co-authored. And you will see some of our uh, younger scientists, some more senior scientists, and some of us that do more of the ethical, legal, and social implication stuff on some of these uh, publications. And this is in addition to all of the publications that people have coming out of their labs. But really, we are attempting to professionally mentor. And we think very strategically about author order, too, for example, on some of these scientific publications. So I'm just going to stop there. Um, and because it's, I'm at, uh, I'm almost at 44 minutes. Uh, I, so we can get to Q and a, but we can leave that there if there's any questions, uh, in response to that. All right. I'm ready to do Q and a now. It's so weird talking into the void like this. Thank you so much, Kim. Um, that, was out, that was outstanding and you, your timing was just fine. We have um, plenty of time for questions and answers. So please, audience members, uh, feel free to put your questions in the Q&A, um, which is a different button from the chat button uh, down in Zoom. And we will uh, review questions and engage um, Kim in a conversation among the panelists. Um, so thank you so much. Um, so I'll start off with a question. Um, you, you gave us a sense of the kind of themes that the SING program chooses. How are those themes chosen? Um, and you know, how, how does the, the, the group then identify particular scientific questions to wrestle with during those particular uh, internship weeks? You know, that's a good question. I think it's kind of incremental and organic. So if I'm thinking about, for example, SING US when they were in Arizona and they were doing cancer genomics, what happened was, um, and I know I'm sure my colleagues don't mind me giving you the backstory. Um, at Illinois, they just got exhausted, right? Like they had organized Sing US for three or four years, and it is so much work. Um, we love it, but but the PI needed a break. <laughs> so one of our other scientists, um, Francine Gachupin, who's um, Pueblo, 
Jemez Pueblo, I think. She's a scientist at University of Arizona in Tucson and works in cancer genomics. And she's like, all right, we'll host. Do you want to move it around? And I think that's how we got the hosting idea. And then, of course, because she had the expertise there, that's what they ended up focusing on. So it has to do with who's got the energy to host that year, which institution they're at, and which experts they can bring. Uh, so it works out. So it was a really great idea. And that's sort of at University of Washington, they had um, people working on pharmacogenomics. And Joe Irisheta, the Perpetua guy, was there, and uh, Katrina Claw the Navajo scientists, even though they were both students, they, their PIs got on board and they hosted that year. So same at University of Alberta. We had a Prion Research Institute here. We uh, Indigenous communities. Oh, that's the other thing, the community angle. There's always at these institutions when there's Indigenous scientists, they're there uh, working on the issues they're working on because there are Indigenous populations in those areas that have those concerns. So in um, Alberta, we have chronic wasting disease um, moving from deer into elk and they're worried as the eco zones move north and climate change that it will move into caribou a traditional food source and so indigenous hunters and non-indigenous hunters are very concerned about chronic wasting disease and because we have a prion research institute and we had the scientific expertise at u of a and we had an indigenous graduate student who's working on the merging of traditional knowledge and prion science together we're like let's do chronic wasting disease we have everything we need right here so that's how it works great question I'll take one of the next ones from the audience. Um, you mentioned that you see different types of knowledges on a spectrum, whereas in the academy, it's more common to contrast Western science with traditional knowledge as if they were a binary. Would you mind saying more about this concept of a spectrum? Well, you know, and I have to think about it more when I write about it. Is that the, the concept I'm going to use? Um, I see peoples around the world. I mean, we have to distinguish, are we talking about the scientific method, little s science? Are we talking about big s science, right? Capitalistic, militaristic science, all of those big money institutions. It's true, not everybody does that kind of science. But peoples across the world and over time have used the scientific method, right? Have done observations, have done experiments. Peoples across the world have also um, pursued questions because they had a vision or a dream or an intuition about it, right? How do you come to your question in the first place? Uh, are you coming out of a particular priority of your community and your history to that question? Uh, so I, that's what I mean. I want to see us all as peoples in the world who can do science and use scientific methods. Um, Without thinking along that binary where indigenous peoples get viewed or non-Western peoples more broadly get viewed as people that have beliefs, superstitions, right? And these more advanced Western people, which gets de facto portrayed as European or European descent people, are the more rational people who are not spiritual, who are not superstitious, right? Who are not acting out of political and cultural priorities, but, but have this kind of more rational, objective worldview. Um, I think all of us um, are capable of doing science and all of us also have traditional views and cultural views that shape the way that we come to questions and what our priorities are that we can then plug our science into. I don't know, does that help? Is that more explicit? <laughs> so we'll take another question from the audience. Um, <laughs> someone uh, typed in, in countries of the global South like India, where many indigenous communities are marginalized in a way that they do not have access to technology beyond mobile phones. What do you think could be the possible ways in which technology 
and scientific knowledge could aid in promoting preservation of cultural identities and governance. Yeah, I mean, not having been to India, I, I think that's really interesting. So I'm looking at the question in the chat. Um, Technology and science can aid in promoting preservation of cultural identities and governance. I mean, I think broadly, I don't think about preservation as a word. That's a word that I would not use. I would rather use a word like the enactment of cultural identities and governance. I think we can use science and technology to continue living as the cultures and peoples that we are. So to go back to the chronic wasting disease, for example, and you can maybe, this person can maybe think of something similar or something analogous in India. Um, indigenous hunters want to keep hunting. People want to keep relating with and eating caribou. They have a culture that has emerged co-constitutively with caribou, right? Uh, using handheld technologies that'll help them sample for chronic wasting disease. Because right now the situation is you have to take the whole head and send it back into the lab for who's going to do that? Indigenous and non-Indigenous hunters can't take a whole head and send that to a lab. If they had something that they could hold in their hand and sample right there and figure out if the animal had CWD, that would really be useful for them, right? And so they're trying to think about how to maintain their hunting practices and their cultural practices that are so entangled with caribou as a the caribou nation, right? The caribou personhood. <laughs> um, and, and is there a way in which technology development can help them uh, enact, continue enacting their culture. So that's just one little example. If I had time to think I could come up with many more, if, if that's a good, if that's a good example. So I don't see at all um, science and technology as ultimately contradicting a, a quote unquote traditional lifestyle. Um, we articulate, and I'm going to use this for term articulation for people who know Jim Clifford's work, or I think Stuart Hall before him, we can articulate uh, a, a kind of scientific practice, a Western scientific practice or technology with an indigenous kind of cultural formation or priority, right? And we've and and so we can then think about this articulation that's that's in part coming from different cultures, but helping indigenous people continue to enact their own life ways. I'll ask the next question. Um, what is what is the role? or should be the role of diasporas in the anti-colonialism and sovereignty, especially in regards to science and technology? Ooh, this is a great question. And one I could only answer well since yesterday. <laughs> so I'm gonna bring up, um, excuse me for just a second while I bring up a PowerPoint that I just loaded for my class yesterday. Um, because I don't like, Diaspora doesn't cut it for me, I have to say. Um, so I'm going to talk about something called trans-indigeneity, uh, which I think is a, a better term than uh, diaspora, but it gets us a little bit at that. Let's see. So um, that's a really good question, though. And, and pardon me, I do this all the time. I'm like, this is the advantage of being at home, though. Um, and I can bring up other PowerPoints. So my colleague, Vince Diaz, who is in American Indian Studies at the University of Minnesota, he is from Guam and works with uh, indigenous peoples throughout Melanesia, Micronesia, and Polynesia. Um, he has this concept, trans-indigeneity, and my students this week in my indigenous techno-science course just read his article, um, Oceania in the Plains. And he is 
has um, canoe builders from um, Melanesia working with canoe builders from Minnesota, my people, Dakota people, and they're both building canoes and talking about traditional navigation techniques, and they're working with virtual reality. And in theorizing how one can be Micronesian in Minnesota and somebody else's indigenous homelands, you might normally use the word diaspora. He uses this word trans-indigeneity instead. Um, and he's talking about... Um, enacting a Micronesian navigational, uh, the way that they navigate, the way that they move through the world, the way they use star knowledge, the way they read the waves and the land around them, bringing those sets of skills to uh, Dakota homelands in Minnesota. And I, it, I used to think, how long before diaspora doesn't matter anymore? How long before you're no longer indigenous, right? You can't simply rely on some biological inheritance in your own body when you are for hundreds of years disconnected from the land's with which your indigenous people ancestors were co-constituted. Land is central to a definition of indigeneity and being indigenous. And not that it's your fault, but things happen historically that sever us from the land, right? And so I never could really uh, take seriously diaspora too far into the future. But then when I got a hold of what Vince is saying about trans-indigeneity, he's basically saying that you learn how to relate to the new lands you come into by comparing them. You do a comparative project with your deep knowledge of the lands that you come from. So that you can, if you know your own lands and waters deeply and you know how to read them deeply and navigate, as you move across the globe, you are comparing the homes that you sail into with the lands and the homes that you came from. And you that's how you, and so when they come into Dakota lands, they're coming in um, not desiring to replace, right? But actually, um, saying we're coming into your homelands, how do we relate in a good way to you? Uh, how do we relate in your terrains? Um, how do we do these kinds of collaborative projects? And one of the problems with settler colonialism is it came and intended to replace. And it used that hierarchy of civilized savage. We're civilized, you're savage. You don't have the right to that land because you're not developing it. You're backwards, you're irrational, you're not Christians. Therefore, we have the right to appropriate everything. And one does not need to come as a, in, as a visitor into new lands and act like that. One can come in and say, I am in your home. How do I relate well with you? How do I bring my knowledges of my place and learn how to interrelate with you in this place? Right. And that's, and so I can't get into all of the theoretical nuance, but if that person is interested, I would go to Vince Vicente Diaz's article, Oceania in the Plains, which was published in Pacific Studies, I think in 2019, and really dig into his definition of trans indigeneity. I just love it. And I'm going to be sitting with it for a while. So, so I got so excited. <laughs> I could go on about that for an hour, but that's not what we're doing. <clears throat> I think the next audience question that I saw was something I had jotted down notes about too. And it's a, it's a nice segue from what you just spoke about, um, especially given the, the different ideas that you talked about with respect to um, how certain scholars have defined indigenous, indigenization and decolonization. How would your approach to this where you emphasize land back and sovereignty to indigenous peoples, work at um, land grant universities or land grab institutions as they've also been called, such as NC State. So what, um, so the question is how do like land grab universities do land back? Well, I think if we're talking about decolonization, especially <laughs> to work with these kinds of institutions, 
how would this decolonization approach fit mm-hmm. in the land grant institution or the land grab institution? Well, I mean, you can think at that level, right? So anybody who's re- who's interested in taking that more literally, which I think we should, um, the Yellowhead Institute at Ryerson University in Toronto has a whole land back report. Um, I, so I think that would be something really good to engage to figure out. And there's there are and there's also a land back issue of the Briar Patch magazine, which is also a Canadian publication where people are talking about various ways of doing land back. You know, when you're going through, uh, how do you actually, in terms of land tenure, do that? You know, what are the legal structures that govern land back? And so, so for very pragmatic, literal land back projects, I would look at that Briar Patch issue, and I would look at the the Yellowhead Institute. Um, land back report at Ryerson. So that's my way of dodging that because I don't work on those projects, but there are people that are beginning to think about that. Um, Are you using conservation easements? Are you simply taking land donations? I know about people in California, you know, settlers as they call themselves, who are saying when, when, when I pass away, I'm giving my family land to this particular tribal entity around here, right? There are those kinds of uh, individual initiatives people can engage in, but I imagine that, but I know there are people out there thinking in ways about the way that institutions can be involved in land back as well. It's not what I'm working in right now. When I'm thinking about the genome project, for example, I often tell people I'm not here to save settler institutions, even though I'm working in one. I'm not here to do equity, diversity, and inclusion. Now, I recognize that that's a byproduct of what I do, and I have a great deal of respect for my colleagues who are focused on equity, diversity, and inclusion. My Good friend Melinda Smith, at, uh, who moved to University of Calgary, is like an EDI person in Canada who's very big on this. And I don't use that language as much, but I, we need people like her, right, doing that work. But I'm here to extract stolen resources <laughs> and use them to build Indigenous life. And for me, part of building Indigenous life is helping train Indigenous bioscientists. It's uh, them going into community, and they're, they're going out and they're doing all kinds of things, right? They're setting up Indigenous-controlled biobanks. That's a repatriation of resources of Indigenous life, right? The, to us, the, the the bio is life. The biologicals are life. They're not some disembodied, now dead thing, right? Uh, so that, that to me is a literal repatriation of Indigenous life. And then the governance authority, the intellectual authority, that's a repatriation of life. Uh, so I tend to, in my work, focus more on the repatriation of life part, but certainly there are people focusing on on land back as well. And I know it sounds like that person has read that Land Grab University expose that High Country News did. It's fantastic. And anybody at a Land Grab University should be familiar with that. That was uh, Tristan Atone, A-H-T-O-N-E, and I can't remember the other author on that, but really important. Um, Along the lines of Craig Wilder at MIT did, what was it called, Ebony and Ivy, where he looked at the the way that um, slavery kind of financed all of these Ivy League institutions. This is similar. It's looking at the way, uh, a similar idea, looking at the way that Indigenous lands uh, built up the wealth of land-grant institutions in the U.S. Thanks. Um, And I'd like to build on that question a bit. In in your talk, you, you mentioned um, the difference between, you know, decolonization and simply adding some new voices to a syllabus. Um, so, what are the ways that we can we can start to approach decolonization, you know, in our syllabi in our classrooms, um, if we don't have access to like a major institutional program like SING? What are the what are the steps that people can take um, at the classroom level or in the program level? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not saying you shouldn't decolonize your syllabus. Like, I think that's great, right? Expanding your citations. Uh, it's just uh, B 
be mindful that that's not necessarily what to call it. But yeah, how do you do that at a place where you can't do sing? That's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think in general, when I talk about decolonization, I try to remember it's not only indigenous people, but it's colonized people around the world, right? So uh, what, how are you restoring, re, you know, you can, th if you'll go back to that baseline definition, what resources, literal material resources are you restoring to the to colonize people who things were taken from. I mean, we already do some of that, right? We do scholarships and recruitment, that kind of thing. But of course, people have to get that. That's only the, the first level, I think, right? Um, they can't get to a university where there are a lot of barriers uh, as well to them staying in. But now I feel like I'm going in a circle because I don't want to say that equity, diversity, and inclusion is itself the restoration of land, of life and the restoration of resources. Um, I don't know, Jason, do you have ideas about, do you, do you, when I was giving you the definitions, did anything come to mind that you all are doing that you feel like is maybe the restitution of land and life? Well, I was thinking of, of partnerships, mm -hmm. um, either in, in classrooms or in research where, you know, we reach beyond simply studying these issues mm -hmm. to trying to connect with people, um, to, you know, indigenous groups, um, to find out what are the ways that we could you know, align what we do as scholars and researchers with, um, you know, the needs and perspectives of those peoples. Um, yeah. And that, so that means in, in a way, extending the classroom outside of the normal bounds, getting yeah. beyond the university and thinking about connecting with communities. Yeah, I know community collaboration is key. Um, you know, repatriation, I don't know what you have at NC State, but if you got a bunch of remains, those need to go back, <laughs> right? And then working with indigenous communities to set up the protocols that they need. You know, um, there there are bad examples of universities that refuse to repatriate, and there are good examples. Uh, there are there are examples of scientists who refuse to work with indigenous communities, and examples of those who work really well and still do their science, and also are collaboratively helping build the capacity of communities to to manage those remains in the way that they want. Um, I had something else come. I also, I had COVID over Christmas, so I totally have COVID brain. And that's also why I'm still coughing. Like my lungs have taken months to clear out. So anyway, um, there was something else I thought of though, with the restitution of land and life around, oh, I was involved theorizing around the edges of a green building project that I also talk about in other talks that the University of California, Berkeley, uh, engineering and science and um, architecture undertook with the Pinoleville Pomo Nation, a uh, Pomo tribe in Mendocino County, California. And they wanted to build greenhouses. And so they had these co-designed charrettes. Uh, Alice Agagino, who is a self defined feminist engineer at University of California, Berkeley, uh, took a team out of grad students, undergrads, faculty went out and they did co-design of houses that were both environmentally sustainable, but also culturally sustainable for the community. So I would view that as a repatriation of life, right? They were bringing their intellectual resources combined with the tribe's resources, which were uh, uh, traditional building materials, traditional knowledges about how they wanted to live. Um, they were trying to do uh, grid tied, but more sustainable housing. Um, and, and so that, that was just a fan, but it was collaborative. It was community-based research. Right. And so that it's, that's a great project too. Um, there's a lot of articles written about that by architects, engineers, by science studies people. So. I have a question that builds on a couple of different things that have come before. So I hope my question makes logical sense. So we've talked a little about a little bit about the decolonizing hopes. 
we've talked a little bit about what, what's going on with land back and places around the country. It sounds like some of what Sing is about is labs back, taking the labs Lab back. back. Yeah. Um, and as non-Indigenous allies at land-grant universities, I hate to ask, well, what can we do? But as allies, when you are trying to build labs and networks of scientists, and I know you've mentioned there are some non-Indigenous allies. Mm-hmm. What do you, what do you look for in an ally? Like, like what is your, what do you hope for in an allied scholarship? <laughs> well, personally, uh, we have learned in Sing. Um, there's plenty of people with good intentions and a lot of expertise out there. But if they have not already shown a commitment to working Indigenous community for a long time, they're not the best fit for Sing because we've run into trouble with people saying really inappropriate things like not realizing what they're saying. So I'll give you an example. Somebody said a scientist that wanted, that was working with us one time, but we brought in because of their expertise, not because they had a history of working collaboratively. They, um, and they had this kind of objectivist, you know, conflating objectivity with neutrality kind of view that's Donna Haraway critiques, which most scientists have. They were, they were not understanding what we mean when we talk about governing science. And we in STS know that. You don't get to do science disarticulated from governance of a society, right? But there's these kind of naive scientists that think, oh, that's politics and these things are completely separate. Um, they said, the only good indigenous governance is no indigenous governance. That's basically another way of saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian. Because if you don't govern, you're not alive. If you're not self-governing, you're dead. I was on one level utterly shocked and on another level like, nah, this, of course, right? Of course, I know how they come to say this. So we run into things like this. If we have somebody who hasn't worked with indigenous communities, who's not really schooled in even ELSI issues, you know, the ethical, legal, social implications. So now we really try to focus on having uh, scientists who've already shown. So at the University of Alberta, our H. pylori uh, theme one we're going to work on, there's a couple of, uh, and I will say it does tend to be disproportionately women, uh, younger scientists and queer scientists, et cetera, uh, who, who get it. Um, uh, people who were themselves marginalized in science make scientists who who get indigenous marginalization in science. Uh, so we're gonna. There's a couple of women who have long-standing relationships with communities in the north around H. pylori, and we're so that's the kind of scientists we look for. But I know which I'm not telling you how to get there. I'm just telling you that's who I prefer to work with, right? <laughs> so you you've got to have people that do community-based research. That's really what it comes down to. You need scientists who are willing to have their scientific research and agenda changed. You know, you can continue doing your science, but your but your trajectory is going to change if you do community-based research. You're not going to helicopter in with some good intention, say, I'll work with these people for a few years and then helicopter out. You're going to get good at it by dedicating part of your career to doing that for the rest of your career. So we had uh, someone ask or, or note that you said that you were trying to move away from the word spirituality. Um, And so I wonder if you could elaborate on that. 
Yeah, because that's based, I mean, we're working in English, right? And when you press indigenous language speakers around creator, something like that, they'll say, well, no, that's not a direct translation in our language. When I'm leaving out Indian Christians too, like there, see, I use the word Indian, which not everybody can use. <laughs> I, there's plenty of indigenous Christians, right? Who I'm not talking about them I, necessarily, uh, people that are, I'm talking about people that that view indigenous traditional uh ways of uh, spiritualities, right? And I think it's a bad translation of, of the way these things are talked about in, in languages. Often what we're talking about, we don't have a spirit material divide in the way that say Western religions do, or I guess I can mostly speak about Christianity. That's the one I know the most about. Um, and that word spirituality implies a, a divide for materiality. And when you look at the ways indigenous, like I'll, I'll talk about my people, Dakota people talk about being in relation. There's a lot of materiality there. We may have a pipe that we smoke in a ceremony, uh, but that pipe is also about, you, when you pass it around, it's about making relations with one another. Um, and there's a there's a materiality to it, right? There's The, the tobacco is a medicine. The, we have medicines that we burn that we know have healing properties. So we can have a big extended conversation about that. But I don't think spirituality as a word really aptly captures the kinds of relationality that are involved in, in the way that Indigenous peoples relate to non-human relatives, the way that we relate to other humans, the way that we relate to the stars, the way that we relate to, in our language, creator is a bad translation. It's really more like mystery, right? The way we relate to the mystery of the universe. Um, we, we talk about being a star people, and this is common to a lot of indigenous peoples, indigenous star knowledge. Um, you can talk about, we come from the stars as a spiritual worldview, but we literally come from the stars, right? Literally life on earth. So you can take that as a material imperative as well. And I think in our languages and worldviews, there's not that divide. And so one way of decolonizing language is to maybe pull back from the world, word spirituality. That's kind of my, my challenge. Are there other ways of thinking and talking about this? But this, of course, requires that we be in conversation with, with indigenous language speakers. So that's where I'm moving. Oh, I see the Chamorro. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, if you know Vince's work, that's so, so cool. <laughs> the the Oceana and the um, Plains article I was talking about. Earlier, you mentioned uh, you had quite a few Navajo participants in the SING mm -hmm. program. Yeah. Can you, you said there was a little bit of a story there. Can you share more about that? Yeah, well, if you ever get a Navajo scientist in to talk, you can ask them. But here's what I think as an outsider. Because <laughs> when I was at MIT, I just did my master's there. There was 11 Native students, me, an Alaska, another Alaska Native woman in the planning department, and nine Navajo scientists over in uh, science and engineering. <laughs> and so I, you know, I was told that the Navajo Nation president, Peter McDonald, was an engineer back in the 80s. And I was told that they really emphasized STEM education in Navajo Nation schools and at Navajo Nation College. So I wonder if that's why. So the other theory I have is um, uh, what I was interviewing, uh, I had an NSF-funded uh, uh, project to interview Indigenous scientists and how they sort of balance these kinds of traditional quote-unquote worldviews and their work in the in the lab together. And what I noticed was that uh, most of the Indigenous scientists I came across and interviewed were grew up as in land-based uh, communities. They did not grow up in diaspora. 
Many of them grew up on the land. And I thought that's interesting because in Native Studies, which is still a social science and humanities field, I would say a disproportionate number of Indigenous Studies scholars who are Indigenous grew up in diaspora or in urban areas, which isn't always diaspora, because my I also grew up in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, that's Dakota homelands. Even though the reservations are in South Dakota now, I don't, you know, even though I went between reservation and city, I don't consider myself as diasporic. I was always in our homelands. Um, but I think because they were land-based, coming from rural communities, um, you know, people were coming from families raising sheep or they were hunting. I think because they were engaging with non-humans in the land on a daily basis, maybe that's why they got interested in cells and things like that. That's that's my theory about why we're seeing more Indigenous scientists who grew up more land-based. And Navajo Nation, of course, that would kind of map onto that as well, right? Because it's a fairly rural rural area across the nation. So. But, but uh, that is a good question to ask Navajo scientists, see if they agree with me. <laughs> and I do know a lot of them, so. <clears throat> As you're moving further into the same program, um, how are your participants grappling with language loss and trying to integrate complex worldview ideas? Mm -hmm. And if they're first, they're first speakers or just the idea of language loss in some of these communities is dramatic. Yeah, it's a good question. And I think... Um, you know, I'll have to ask that question at the next thing I'm at. I, again, to because there's such a disproportionate number of us, I can talk about uh, Navajo or Dene people a little bit. When I first went to SOCNIS, the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, uh, so it's SOCNIS is the acronym. Some people in the audience may know. Go to that meeting. And it's not only for Chicanos, old school language and Native Americans. I a lot of other people go there. A lot of other people of color go there and just other people who feel mar have felt marginalized in science. A lot of you present research at that meeting, but you also have uh, um, conversations and panels on how to stay in science, right? First generation university students run into some of these same problems. Students from rural school districts or poor school districts who didn't get adequate science and math training run into these problems. So SOCNIS would be great for a lot of people. But the, my first SOCNIS meeting, I was walking down the hallway of the convention center in San Jose, California. And there was like six Navajo scientists standing in a circle speaking their language. And I started crying. I was like, oh, my. it was just so powerful, so powerful to see that, you know, I just, and we, most tribes in the U.S. don't have we don't have that number of scientists, right? And they really have retained language more. So they are, I think, some of the Navajo scientists I work with have been working at home to think about how to do genomics in Navajo. How do you do that? And it's not just a one-way translation because you don't want to translate a, a language and a framework and a set of approaches developed in a non-Navajo worldview into Navajo, right? So I don't know what the, because I wouldn't be privy to those conversations. I think they're very only Navajo are involved in those conversations and they have enough scientists now where they can do that. So um, I do know that they're happening. Um, and uh, it, it's around how do we translate, you know, and how do we make sure that our worldview is being manifested in doing this work versus us just translating literally uh, a, a non-Indigenous worldview into our language and then doing science. So <clears throat> we did a little collaboration with that, um, with our Haudenosaunee collaborators around the GE Chestnut. And it's very complex. And it was just, yeah, it woke up a lot of really interesting questions around you know, who's still speaking language and what that means for how they perceive these issues. It was, it was a really beautiful thing to watch. Yeah. If you publish anything, I would love to read that. That would be really. And, and so what was that research? Uh, we collaborated with some of the Haudenosaunee Environmental Task Force. And one uh -huh. of 
one of their leaders um, is an Iroquois language scholar. And so he yeah. did some primary research starting to, de- to figure out how to translate these terms meaningfully into Iroquois languages so that we could have conversations about what it meant for a GE chestnut. And so, um, oh, okay. so that's, that was just some of the conversations around like unpacking like foundational linguistics of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. six or seven Iroquois <laughs> languages and trying to think about how he could <laughs> tell stories and ask questions um, from a concept that yeah. obviously didn't exist, right, but right. it was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. These are long projects, right? I mean, multi-generational projects. And, but if, um, and that's just what I mean, a scientist has to be willing to be changed and to have their trajectory change. Cause this is not going to happen in a three-year grant cycle. You know, this is what kind of commitment am I making over the long term? Am I what kind of knowledge am I going to be helping produce? Yeah. Well, as we're getting close uh, to the end of our time, I'll I'll combine a couple of questions as the last question for you to respond to. Um, So one person asked about how, you know, it's often necessary to balance capitalistic funding with doing science and work um, and how Singh is addressing that. Mm -hmm. And another person raised the question about how these kinds of genomics initiatives address the ethical issues that we've seen in the USA with DNA ancestry companies and globally, and, and we can think historically about problematic research that's been done um, mm-hmm. around genomics um, in indigenous people. And so I, I guess what I wanna do is frame those questions in terms of how does Singh both participate in the scientific institution that mm-hmm. has been problematic and is yep. connected to colonial institutions and histories and also work against that? And what, what's it like to, to operate in that kind of tension? Um, that's a really interesting question. I am against universalism, which means obviously, right? Which means we don't all stand in the same place and we don't all have to say and do the same things. <clears throat> I am ultimately anti-capitalist and anti-colonial. <laughs> I don't think all of the Singh scientists necessarily, I think some people, you know, kind of might believe in green capitalism or I don't, <laughs> but we have these conversations, right? Um, there are certain things I can say and push that my colleagues on a big NIH grant can't necessarily say and push. And, and as an indigenous uh, feminist scholar who takes seriously feminist standpoint, this is one of the things I help give them a language for. You know, um, we're all at a different place on our journey, right? Um, and I, I don't want to use the word evolution, but we're all evolving, right? Uh, so we do have... I am thinking in terms of Sing Canada, for example, about doing small science. And this is one of the reasons I'm interested in these handheld technologies. On the other hand, it's totally entangled in capitalistic kind of institutions. So this is something we're thinking with. Uh, We live in a colonial edifice and you don't get to just say, okay, I'm done with colonization. I'm out of here. You're always trying to maneuver within that colonial edifice and it's very strong and there's a huge power imbalance. So right now we're sort of theorizing new ways to work, Um, but it's, it's a very good question. And it's a question we sit with every day and different individuals within our SYNC consortium are addressing these questions in different ways. So that's the capitalism side. I can't remember the other, what the other side was. Um, but yeah, there's no politically pure place to stand. You sit with the predicament and you attempt to work with it, right? As best you can and push back where you have the space to push back. So. Well, I think that's a, a great uh, final answer to end on. <laughs> um, so I want to thank um, Dr. Kitty Barnhill Dilling and also um, Nancy Fields for joining us as panelists. Really appreciate your role in the conversation. 
Um, thank you to Patty Mulligan of the Genetic Engineering and Society Center who helped do the publicity and logistics for this webinar. Uh, the behind the scenes work um, of, of making this happen virtually is, is really important. Um, and your work here was, was huge to the success of this evening. Thank you to all the audience members who came to listen and participate and ask questions. And finally, um, a huge thanks uh, to Dr. Talbert for joining us this evening um, and bringing um, so much of your life experience, your experience as a scholar, as a researcher, as um, a decolonizer to us this evening. Um, thank you so much for sharing with us and good evening to everyone. Thank you. Thanks, everyone.